Last Sunday was a very interesting Sunday. We had several people comment Sunday and through the week that it was, it was an unusually um, special Sunday. And we're not quite sure what caused that. It's just that God caused some things to come together to where people said, you know, I just felt God moving, God speaking to me. I felt the love within the congregation. And uh, there was nothing that we did differently, really, in planning. In fact, I didn't even go to planning meeting that week because I was doing runs between the hospital for our grandson. So it it felt in some ways like we were less prepared, and yet um, God showed up. And I love the fact that uh, sometimes we can't explain why God does what he does. But last Sunday afternoon, one of our volunteers, Keola, put a a post on Facebook that I just want to read to you because it's going to lead us into the message today. It's a little bit of a long post, but there's a reason why, because of what he says in it. He says, God's putting on my heart to be thankful. This is Sunday afternoon last week. So I want to um, thank my family. I can't explain it because it feels like I've been saying it every weekend, but today everyone was on fire. From the tech team, everyone made sacrifices in order to serve God, and he blessed us even more than we can imagine. Thank you, Angel, for leading us today in the booth. God is calling you to do great things. Thanks to my brother, Dustin, for one of the best mixes I've ever heard. Thank you to Fred, and welcome back. I appreciate you doing the lights, and on top of that, doing it for the first time. Thank you. Adam, you bring a positive energy to the team. Can't wait to hear you start playing around on the board. Thank you to Jared. You have a kind heart and are, and are a joy to be around. I appreciate you when you hang with the tech team on your off weeks. On to the worship team. What a blessing it is to serve with you all. To our worship pastor, Matt Ross, you're instrumental in so many of our walks with Jesus Christ. The way you lead, the way you honor God, the way you set the example is just amazing. Thank you for all that you do. Austin, my little, or my little big bro, I always enjoy when you're around. I know others feel the same. Your kindness toward others and your spirit to serve the Lord is amazing. Eric, you led the 755 service and ushered in the tone for the day. Love you, brother. Carla, you were absolutely amazing, and it left me speechless when you sang Ever Be. It melted my heart. Phyllis, I absolutely love the way you worship and admire your heart. Rebecca, I'm happy you're back. You always bring laughter to the team. Myron, I don't even know where to start. Every time I hear you sing, I'm blown away. Greta, I'm thankful you're so talented on piano, especially since many of the songs had highlighted portions of the piano. You played beautifully. Last but certainly not least, I want to thank our pastor, starting with Pastor Jace. I love watching your growth in the church and your perspective. I don't get to see you much because of our roles, but I'm proud of you, brother. Pastor Darren, the word you shared today was great, but the way you delivered it was astonishing. You always do an amazing job, and today I felt like your level was even higher. Each service had its uniqueness, and you shared the message slightly different. Pastor Sam, I appreciate you pulling me aside and pouring into me. You were on fire today. Honestly, I've seen the way you were with everybody today and how you made intentional time with others and made everyone feel appreciated. I believe you helped spread the fire today. Pastor Darren talked about unity in the church today, and I got to live and witness it. What a perfect song for the day. The church is alive. I love you all. Uh, isn't that great? Uh, an acknowledgement. What's amazing is this acknowledgement of many of the people who help make Sunday service what it is, but it doesn't include everybody. I mean, we have dozens of you who serve very humbly as ushers who enable us to do what we do. We couldn't do the things we do without your humble week, weekly service. And, and then we move out into the lobby, and we've got greeters that are there. We have people operating the connections counter and the welcome center, and, and people working behind the 
coffee counter helping to give you the, the coffee that you so love. And then we move into the, the next-gen center, and we've got people helping to check parents and kids in. And then we have the, those that are helping nursery and changing diapers and rocking the babies to all the um, classroom teachers from the toddlers up through the elementary kids. We have the middle school fuel going on there in the next-gen worship center. And then around the perimeter are adult classrooms where adult Bible studies are taking place. And I can't forget the, the guardians who are roaming the whole building, making sure that everything is safe for all of us, and the facilities team who's who's making sure things are picked up and functioning. And I'm probably forgetting somebody, but you see, it takes a ton of people just to do Sunday morning. And that's just Sunday morning. Sunday night, there's youth ministry. And then Monday, there's there's activities through the day. And Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, I mean, there's all kinds of things happening. It's not not just that. Things are, are not just happening in the church. They're happening outside the church. Their ministry happening outside these walls. And so you see how all of us work together to do God's work on this earth. And last week, we looked at Ephesians 4, where Paul talked about this incredible, miraculous unity that God has formed within the church. I mean, in Paul's day, he took people who were very opposite, Jews and Gentiles, who oftentimes were hostile toward each other. He says, I'm going to make you family to where you are brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and the walls came down, and they began to love on each other. And, and if you look at the church, even look at our church, you've got people from, from different ethnic backgrounds. You've got people from different ages, you know, from the littlest ones up into 90-year-olds. You've got people with different um, occupational backgrounds, uh, different spiritual levels. I mean, all the mix that comes together that God brings into this place. There is not a place on planet Earth like the church, bringing variety together and forming unity. But we learned last week that unity isn't easy. Paul said make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because God's work of getting us together is, is something It's pretty easy on our end. You know, God unites us. That's wonderful. You know, God does the miracle. We get to watch it happen. But the maintaining of that unity is, is on us. We've got to work to put the effort in. And any of us who are married know what that's like. Getting married is pretty easy compared to maintaining a happy, healthy, vibrant, long-lasting marriage. And so Paul says there's some things that you can do to make unity um, enduring. It's, part of it has to do with our heart, our attitude, our, the things that flow out from us. So he says you need to be humble and you need to be gentle and you need to be patient. And when you're like that, you're going to foster an atmosphere that helps hold the, the group together. But he says it's even more than that. There's got to be some, some truth that binds us together. And so rather than say it's the whole Bible, because we differ on a lot of, a lot of perspectives on the entire Bible, he says there are some core things um, that, that hold us together. There are things that we just hold and say, hey, there's, there, there's this one thing that we hold on to. And he actually lists seven of these one things. And one of them was, for example, uh, there's one Lord. There's one Lord. And we believe that Lord is Jesus Christ. And if we come together and agree on that, that Jesus is Lord, and we agree that he is to be the Lord of our lives, which means this, I will do whatever he asks, no matter how difficult, no matter how contrary to how I feel, I will do what Jesus is asking me to do. If that is our perspective, you can work through any difficulty. As a church, as a family, 
in a friendship. I mean, if you've got that as a foundational thing, hey, we're all trying to do what Jesus wants us to do, man, that, that makes unity strong. And so as Paul's talking about um, what can hold us together, he goes on as we progress through um, the fourth chapter. And if you have a Bible, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 4. He's going to introduce something that really could, could make unity difficult, but he says this actually makes unity even stronger. It's a thing called diversity. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. God has given a variety of what's called spiritual gifts, and the strength of the church is in the unity of our diversity. We're each unique and vital part of God's mission in the world. And whether you're a, you know, a seasoned Christian, or actually you might not, might not even be a Christian, you need to know this. From the very beginning of time, God has planned to give you a gift or, or a few gifts that you could use for your contribution to his work of the kingdom. Now, if you're not a believer, wonder like, oh, I don't know what my gift is. I know. You will when you surrender your life to Christ and, and you allow him to unfold the gift for you. But he's been waiting to give it to you. He has a purpose in your life. In fact, what you'll find is when you operate in the area of your giftedness, you will experience a joy that I have to tell you is, is at least comparable to the joy of your own salvation. The, the feeling of being used by God to bless someone else's life, I mean, is an incredible thing. When you can lay down, your, lay down at night in your bed and say, God, thank you for using me to bless a child's life or to bless that, that young man in prison, to bless his life, to bless that person that's in another country on a foreign field. That you use me to touch that person's life. Oh, I, I know why I'm here. I know why, I'm, I know why you put me on this earth. See, it's, it's a key to understanding your purpose for life. When you understand how God wired you, what you were made for, it becomes a driving force. It might become your occupation, or it might become something you do aside from your occupation. It might be your ministry within the church as a volunteer. But it is something that will become a dominant driving force in your life. And it'll be, it'll be something that will give you great fulfillment. Understanding and exercising your spiritual gifts are very, very important for each one of us. And not only for our own satisfaction, but for the benefit of those that we are to minister to. See, spiritual gifts were given for us to help other people. And if you don't use the gifts God has given you, there is someone on the other end who is being deprived of God's favor because you have cut it off. And so it's critical that each one of us understand what it is God made us to do and how it works in this bigger picture of the church. I call this unity and diversity. You smash the words together, you get university. Now that word's taken, so I can't, can't give a new definition to that. But there really is this kind of, a, of unity and diversity. We're, we're not all alike. We don't all act alike. We, we're, we're different. But there's beauty and there's actually strengths in our uniqueness. And so I want to take a look at, at those two key words in the message today that Paul speaks of in this passage. The first is the word unity. It's the word unity. Unity is based on the headship of Christ. How many of you are reading through the book of Acts with us? 
If you're not doing that, you can pick up a reading plan in the lobby, but it's been an exciting journey going through Acts because it's a follow-up to the book of Luke, written by the same author. In fact, when he, when he comes to the book of Acts, Luke's begins, Luke begins by saying, in my former volume, my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until he was taken up into heaven. Now, if you catch there, Luke is saying something real incredible. I wrote in the Gospel of Luke, my first writing, all that Jesus started doing until he went to heaven. I'm going to now tell you in the book of Acts what he continues to do from heaven through his body of the church. See, it's a continuation of the ministry of Christ, but it's different now because Jesus is the head in heaven and his church is the body on earth. It is what what becomes his hands, his feet, his voice on this earth. In Colossians chapter 1, we read that he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head, we are the body. When I was a, a young, young guy, my dad brought home a crate of live chickens once, and I got all excited thinking, hey, we're going to have chickens for pets. You know, some people have dogs, some people have cats, we're going to have chickens. But I was wrong. We weren't getting them for pets, we were getting them for dinner. Yeah, ooh, dad, dad began to do the dirty work of starting to butcher the chickens, and, and we, we literally saw chickens running with their heads cut off. I mean, if, you, if you've ever been around a farm, you, you see that, and they just kind of go all over the place. There's no direction because the body's moving, but the head's not telling it where to go. And we can be like that as a church. We can, we can be like, like that as individuals, just a lot of motion, but very little direction because we're disconnected from the head. Jesus is the head of the body, which is his church. Now, as the head, he gets to call the shots. He gets to tell us what to do. See, I picture the, the church body in all its diversity like a, an orchestra. Now, in an orchestra, you've got a variety of instruments, very different kinds of instruments. You've got woodwinds, you've got brass, you've got strings, you've got percussion. And even looking up here today on our stage, you've got Matt over here playing on a guitar, and they've got another big violin over here, <laughs> bass violin being played, and, uh, and they're very different, but they're strings. And, and you get different kinds of percussion, different kinds of horns and, and woodwinds, and you get all these in the orchestra. Now, if you've ever walked into the band room at school and everyone's kind of warming up, it just sounds disastrous. You, you just are ready to, 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 to put your fingers in your ear, go throw up. It just is so nauseous. And, and then the conductor comes in and pulls them together. If you've ever gone to a symphony and, and watched, that conductor is able to direct this whole slew of differing instruments and different sounds, blend them into a harmony that's, that's powerful. And, and Jesus does it. Jesus is the head. Who's, he's like the conductor saying, okay, body, you've got these gifts and you've got these gifts and these and these and all these are different, but I'm going to blend them together because I'm the conductor of the church. And the conductor unites them around the same sheet of music. And the scriptures become our guiding sheet of music and enables us to come together under the headship of Christ and so, because Jesus is in that unique role, he gets to lead. We are the body. We all look to him to find out, what, is, what does he want me to do with my part in this bigger picture of the body? But not only does he call the shots, he gives the gifts. It says that he, it, he's the one who gave the gifts. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Jesus loves to give gifts. 
And so when you give your life to Christ, you get a whole batch of gifts. You get gift of eternal life, gift of forgiveness of sins. You get the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit comes a whole batch of gifts called the, the gifts of the Spirit. And those are given. They're all of grace. They're free. We can't earn them. They're freely given. And yet, so many times I find believers who, who really grab a hold of the first gift, eternal life, but, but many times don't really understand the second gift of the Holy Spirit. Don't really know what that means. I'm going to heaven. That's all I care about. But God comes to live inside of you through his Holy Spirit. That's a gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But not only that, he gives you spiritual gifts. And so many believers go through life totally oblivious to the fact that God has given them spiritual gifts gifts. They, they, they think that, that maybe God's given that to certain people, but not to everyone. But I, I want to dispel a myth. Christianity, or the work of the church, was not meant to be a spectator sport. We don't go to watch other people use their gifts. We go to be encouraged to use our gifts so that we can all be participants to play our musical part or to play our role on the team. We've got a job to fulfill, and we'll talk more about that next week, but we each have a place, and God has given us gifts. Now, it says here that Jesus gives the gifts. Other places says the Holy Spirit gives a gift. It really doesn't matter. They come from God. Nobody gets skipped in the process. And Paul, Paul draws upon a passage from the Old Testament from Psalm 68. And just to give you a little background, Psalm 68 is a psalm about God having victory over the pagan demonic gods, the heathen gods that lived on the mountain of Bashan. In ancient times, people believed gods lived on the mountains because man didn't live on mountains. It was too difficult. So the gods found that was a place they can get away from people and be in the mountains. That's why my eyes look to the mountains from whence cometh the Lord. It's because this view that God dwelt in the mountains. And so in this psalm, David extols the greatness of God, how he had victory over the, over the pagan gods. And he claimed Mount Bashan. And then he led captives in a train, which was an ancient practice that when, when people won wars, they actually would drag behind them in chains the captains and the kings of the army they defeated, sometimes without fingers and toes. And they would parade them through the city. And, and then when the parade was concluded, that person would receive the booty, the spoils of war as the gifts. Sometimes he then would turn around and give those gifts to the people. And in this picture from Psalm 68, God then ascends to Mount Sinai as kind of his ascent home. Like, I've won the war, I'm heading home to the mountain. And so when, when Paul reads that, he's not just reading that, that this was a picture of the Old Testament. He's saying this is also a picture of Jesus. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he defeated the enemies of sin and death and the devil. And in a sense, he's making a public spectacle of them. You can read that in Colossians. And he's parading them through town, in a sense. And on his way to victory, on his ascent to heaven... He turns around and gives gifts to his people. It's like he shares the spoils of war with his family. Jesus is giving the gifts. Now, there is a, a change of word. If you actually look at the, the psalm from Psalm 68, it says this. It says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. But Paul doesn't say receiving gifts. Paul says he gave gifts. Well, that's a problem. 
Is Paul misquoting Scripture? Is there a discrepancy here? And it's not as difficult as it seems. A lot of biblical difficulties really are explainable when you understand how language was used in the culture. And in this particular way, what Paul is saying is really Jesus, Jesus not only received gifts, but turned around and passed those gifts on. And we see this language used on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where it says, "...being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing." So what, what happened when Jesus ascended to heaven, God says, I give you now the Holy Spirit. Jesus turn, turns around to mankind and says, now I give the Holy Spirit to you. That's the day of Pentecost. So in, in one kind of swooping motion, he receives this gift and then distributes it. So it's really both. He received and gave gifts. And so Paul is just saying that he gave this gift, this gift of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that come with the Holy Spirit. And he begins to identify some of those gifts. Now, there's another little part of that I just want to make a comment on. It says in here, in parentheses, that he ascended. And what does it mean but that he also descended to the lower regions, the earth? He descended is the one, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above heavens that he might fill all things. Kind of difficult there. But, but I grew up in a church that quoted oftentimes the Apostles' Creed. And in the Apostles' Creed was a phrase where it says that, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, um, descended into hell. Did Jesus ever go to hell? The Bible never clearly says that. That's just a reading between the lines of Scripture because what the English Standard Version does is make real clear what Paul was trying to say is this Jesus who ascended to heaven is the very same Jesus who started in heaven and came to earth as a baby to deal with sin to conquer it, and then ascend back to heaven. Not only did he ascend back into heaven, he ascended to a higher place than he had before. Because back in in chapter 1 of Ephesians, it says that he ascended far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age and the age to come. He's trying to emphasize the fact that Jesus is exalted. This is the Jesus you saw on this earth. He went back to heaven where he started. So the unity is found in the head, Jesus Christ. But then this issue of diversity. Our diversity is key to the ministry of of believers. The word there for grace is a Greek word, charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. It's where you may have heard a a term, charismatic, charismatic movement. Many years ago, that was a real big deal in our culture because there was a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's some strange teachings that came out of the charismatic movement. There are also some very good teachings that came out of the charismatic movement. And one of those was this, that God has given all of us divine enablements from him that can be used for the building up of his church. Every believer has been given spiritual gifts. Sometimes those spiritual gifts are miraculous abilities. Sometimes they are, they are skills that are anointed. There are people who have skills like teaching and mercy and helping, and, and those are just skills they have. But, but it becomes a spiritual gift when God takes that and uses it to bless his kingdom, help his kingdom to grow. And so there's this ministry of, of all believers because all have received these gifts of grace, of charis, and he identifies some as apostle, um, prophet, evangelist, pastors, teachers. He's not trying to give a complete list. He's just giving, he's probably giving some of the dominant gifts that, that Ephesus saw when that church was planted. 
Because we know the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. When Paul left Ephesus, he left a young man there to lead the church. His name was Timothy. When Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Timothy, fan into flame the gift God has given you. Do the work of an evangelist. And so we have these gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastors, teachers, all at work in the formation of the church. But there are many other gifts as well. And you can go to other places and and find those. But what each of us need to do is discover what is God's gift for us. That's the first step. Discover what God's gift is for you and for me. There are four main passages in Scripture that describe spiritual gifts. Uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. You can read through those, and you can actually uh, make a list, you know, 20-plus different spiritual gifts. But none of those lists are meant to be exhaustive. I would say they're meant more to be suggestive. Because oftentimes there are gifts that aren't even listed in the Bible that people possess. Because culture changes, uh, society changes, uh, the tools we have to work with change. And so, so God may gift you in a way that's not even listed in the Bible. That's why when people take spiritual gift tests, I'm a little cautious because they're trying to pigeonhole you into these specific gifts to show you which ones you have. And they might be helpful for giving direction. But what they assume is that you've already begun serving. Because when they ask you questions, have you felt a reward doing this? Do you enjoy doing that? You've you got to be doing stuff to be able to respond to that. And here's, here's what I believe is the best way to find your spiritual gifts. Start doing stuff. It's like, like Andy. You, you get to a place, maybe a place that you think, well, this isn't where I'm gifted. I wasn't gifted to run sound. But in that place, God stirs your heart. And, and something begins to change within you. And, and it's like a, a car. When a car is still, it does not move very well. When it starts to move, you can steer it to the left or to the right. And when you start moving, when you start saying, God, I'm going to serve, I'm just going to start serving, God says, okay, now that you're serving, I'm going to direct you this way, or I'm going to direct you that way. When I went to Bible college, I was among students who knew their gifts. Some were singers, some were preachers. A lot of them knew what they wanted to do. I had no clue. I just went there to study the Bible. And while I was there, God began to open up different doors. And what, what happened over a course of several months is I typically found myself being part of a leadership group, helping to make decisions for the school or for a team, or I was involved with teaching. And I enjoyed those things and found out over the course of time, I think that's what God made me to do, to, to lead and to teach. And so that's, for all my adult life, I've been involved doing those two things. I've done a lot of other things. But the things that I say that I really enjoy doing, that I feel like I contribute the best at, are those two things. God has gifted you in some specific areas, and you need to find what that area is. And we as a church will do our part to, to help you. It doesn't mean that your gift is in the church. It might not be as a pastor. It might not be as a missionary. You might be a, a business leader who feels called by God to run a business and run it in a very Christian way that gives a witness to what Christ is doing. You might be a, a doctor or, or a nurse who's a, a, a Christian. You might be a school, public school teacher. You feel like, this is where I believe God's called me. And God can use you in profound ways in other places. You don't have to quit your job and go into full-time ministry when you d- discern your spiritual gift. You just need to dedicate it to the Lord. Say, God, use me in this way to reach people, to testify to you, to help build your church. Discover your gifts and then develop your gifts. Gifts don't come fully developed You've got to work at them. You've got to, got to refine them. And it takes effort. Sometimes we say, oh, I wish I could sing like so-and-so. I wish I could play like so-and-so. I wish I could do, I write like so-and-so. Well, 
Part of that is those people have worked at it a long, long time. And the reason they could work a long, long time at it is because they enjoy doing the work. I have to tell you that every time when I'm writing a sermon, now some are a little easier than others, but sometimes it's a grind. For 15, 18 hours, it feels like I'm agonizing over every, every point of the message. It's just like, oh, God, is this, is this what you want said? Is this right? Is this true? Is this backed up by history? Is this what the, the text means? I mean, I grind through it. And then when I'm all done and Sunday's over and it's been preached, I say, okay, can't wait to do it again. You feel that way when you're doing something you're supposed to do. Um, when, you're, when you're doing something you aren't supposed to do, when you get done with it, you go, man, I'm glad I'm over, over with that. Did my one shot with that. Gave, gave a devotion for a group and never want to do that again. And maybe that's not what you're wired to do. But when it is, you say, I'm willing to put in the hard work to refine it because that's who God made me to be. Discover the gift, develop the gift. Romans chapter 12, verse 8 says, the one who contributes, he says, be generous in doing it. The one who leads, do it with zeal. If, you got acts, if you're doing acts of mercy, do it with cheerfulness. When you help someone, say, it's my pleasure. Okay? Enjoy your gift. Make it better. And then deploy your gifts. Deploy it. In 1 Peter 4.10, it says, as each has received a gift, use it. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Use it or lose it. It is meant to be used to be a blessing to someone else. God has given you gifts to be used for his glory. When you do that, you'll experience three things. One, effectiveness. You'll actually feel like, man, I got a job done. I did that well. You know, I accomplished that. There'll be a sense of effectiveness. There'll be affirmation. There'll be people around you who'll say, hey, you know what? You, you have an ability to write in a special way. You know what? You do, you do so well when you lead people. I think God's given you the gift of leadership. Uh, you do real well in being a support because you see things that other people don't see. You, you know right where to step in to help and make sure things don't fall apart. That's a gift that God has given you. People around you will affirm it. They'll even say things like, when you did such and such, when you wrote me that note, when you gave that lesson, when you counseled me, I felt God speaking to me through you. So there's affirmation and there's fulfillment. There's just this thrill that, man, I really love doing this. I could do it again. It's not like I, I want to do it for three months and then take a break. It's like, this is who I am. I cannot stop who I am. And I want to do this again and again and again because that's what God made me to be. This past Tuesday, some of you are aware of the news that there was an airplane that went down. Southwest Airplane left New York Tuesday morning on a four-hour flight to Dallas. And 20 minutes into the flight, they were at 30,000 feet, and one of the engines blew. Piece of, the, of shrapnel flew up, smashed through one of the windows, busted a hole there, and began to suck a woman out the window. And actually, some, some passengers grabbed her and pulled her. She was halfway out the window, pulled her back in. Unfortunately, that lady eventually died. But, but I, I followed that whole, that whole story and how people responded. Can you imagine the air blowing through the cabin, the panic, the oxygen mask drop, all the things that you ignore at the beginning of the flight, start to say, okay, what am I supposed to do now? Where is it? How do I do this? Become very real. There was a man who actually took that moment to buy Wi-Fi time because he believed this may be the end and I need to write some notes. There was a father, pastor, who wrote to his dad and said, pray, they're going to try to land the plane, but in case things don't work out, 
tell our girls we love them. And as, as that plane was, was, was rocking and, 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 and shaking and descending, the pilot was very calm. A lady named Tammy Jo Schultz, a Christian woman, very devoted Navy pilot, was flying that plane. And you can hear her dialogue with the control tower in Philadelphia going back and forth and what they needed to do to land this plane. And that man in the control tower, man, he was cool. He was encouraging to her. He gave her confidence that this was going to work out just fine. And uh, when they got ready to land the plane, the, uh, the, um, the, the cabin stewards came through and said, cover your heads, bend forward, and prepare for a rough landing. Now, I don't know what, what would be going through your head at that time. What rough landing means? Does that mean we're going to blow up? Does that mean this thing's going to explode? Or does that mean it's just going to shake a little bit? I don't know. But I'm scared. And the plan landed. And they were safe. And cheers rose in that airplane. And people immediately took out their cell phones. They began to call, I'm okay, I'm okay, the plane landed. And they all looked, who, who landed this plane? It was a humble lady who did her job. And just think about that. The pilot, how important the pilot who, who developed that skill, how important that was. How important it was that the man in the control tower did his part to make it easier for her to land, to clear off all the other planes so she could land. I think of those, those um, attendants in the plane who themselves are not, are not in a position to panic, but they've got to give hope to everyone else in the plane. And they all work together to create a beautiful ending, the kind of ending where people pick up their phone and tell their friends and family and cheer and lives were saved. I can't help but think of the church, what happens when we all do our part and do it well. Because when we do the church well, here's what happens. People take their phones out and they start to tell their friends and family. And people cheer and celebrate. And most importantly, lives get saved.